and welcome to another episode of Boundless Body Radio. I'm your host, Casey Ruff, and today we have another amazing guest to reintroduce to you now. Marty Kendall is a returning guest on our show. Be sure to check out his amazingly educational discussion on episode 170 on Boundless Body Radio. Marty is an engineer who seeks to optimize nutrition using a data-driven approach. Marty's interest in nutrition began 18 years ago to help his wife Monica better control her type 1 diabetes. Since then, he has developed a systemized approach to nutrition, tailored for a wide range of goals, contexts, and preferences. Over the past five years, Marty has shared his research at OptimizingNutrition.com. He has developed Nutrient Optimizer and Data-Driven Fasting to guide thousands of people on their journey towards health. He is the author of Big Fat Keto Lies, which clarifies the most common misconceptions and mistakes with low-carb and ketogenic diets. He also wrote Data-Driven Fasting Manual to optimize your fasting routine and to ensure you achieve your goals. He is the host of the Optimizing Nutrition Podcast, and we are so grateful to welcome Marty back onto our show. Marty, welcome back to Boundless Body Radio. Hey, man, great to chat again. Absolutely. I've been very much looking forward to this since we hung up last time, and I feel like yeah, I had... It was a ton of fun. We had a lot of uh, open loops, I think, to chat about. <laughs> Seriously. Seriously. I'm super intimidated and don't know exactly what direction we're going to go in. I just know it's going to be <laughs> very, very uh, interesting and fun, and I'm very much looking forward to it. Uh, before we get rolling, I do have to ask, I've been a little bit concerned about you. In our last... Mm. Yeah. On our last episode, you invoked the rap of the the keto and carnivore gods and i'm just i'm just wondering if you've like suffered through like a tornado of spinach or if like a you know landslide of butter hit your house or something have have you (laughs) have you been affected at all by the by the uh invoking of wrath of the keto gods i've been okay i think i don't know yeah i don't don't, don't mind poking a few bears and um (laughs) You know, attacking a few sacred cows occasionally when That's I think it's great. appropriate. <laughs> That's great. Well, we're glad to know that you are okay. <laughs> That's really great. Um, before we dive into nutrition, I want to talk about something that you mentioned recently that I, I really love. You, it, kind of a concept of like closing the loop and being really yeah. good at less things um, or being very, very good at one thing. Can you talk about why yeah. you feel that's important? Yeah, I, I suppose I've been on this massive journey over the last few months myself, just trying to manage like a day job and, you know, the, my online avatar life and uh, trying to produce things and like just so many things in my head all at once. And I got to the point where my brain was exploding and trying to get everything done all at once at the same time. And I came across some um, dude named Cal Newport who talks about deep work mm. and a world, world without email and dove down that rabbit hole and um, I don't know how I hadn't come across it before but then discovered Getting Things Done by David Allen which is an old productivity book and in that he talks about a a 1920s study where they they observed waiters in a restaurant and, and the research was just amazed that, you know, through the meal, the waiters could remember every intricate detail. It was their job literally to remember everything about that person and what they had for an entree and what they might like for a dessert. But then as soon as they paid the bill, they completely erased their memory of anything about that person and got on with the next thing and sort of dawned on them that, the you know, we have all this information floating around in our brain, but then when we close the loop, we shut it down and move on and can focus on the next thing and, like, the whole concept around closing the loop, getting things done is 
uh, you know, full capture to say I've got these ideas in my head, I'm going to write it down on a list, I'm going to organise that so I know when I'm going to do it, but I'm going to focus on one thing at a time. Like you can think of if you've got a task, if you've got 80 things to do today, you really can't do all 80 at once. You can really like think of it as a as a key. You can take that key off the off the uh, you know the, the out of the cupboard and, and go to that one thing and then once you've done that you put it back and take the the next thing down and and do that and put it back and and you get much more productivity much more success when you focus on one thing and and our whole uh, you know world you know advertising is designed to create you know an inquisitive mind and and trigger intrigue and create open loops that you're always obsessing about and you want to investigate it more and but you know social media has just put that on complete steroids that we're set up all the time to have you know million browsing windows open you're looking at twitter facebook instagram doom scrolling all the time and you're completely overwhelmed with all this information and yeah i found it really useful just to say what's the one thing i'm doing now i'm going to focus on that and then once i've finish that move on to the next thing and just uh yeah i think that's really been helpful for me but in the whole programs nutrition and everything we do it's the same thing again and again people get when people get overwhelmed with too much information even if it's all good information their their brains blow up and can't deal with it and really you're trying to train your your amygdala, your habits, your lizard brain, and think of, you know, you've got a, a pet cat and you've got seven people screaming instructions at the cat. The cat doesn't understand English and it's really hard to train to start with, which is a lot like our lizard brain. But, you know, it can, or if you're training your dog, you, you can, it can only take one new instruction, one new habit at a time. And then once you've done that, you've moved on to the next one and you've got all these people with, you know, your CGM and I'm tracking my LDL and my I'm tracking my sleep with my aura ring. And I, yeah, had my genome sequenced with 23andMe and I ran through, <coughs> ran it through Prometheus and I got this, you know, 50-page report about all the genetic things that, are, you know, and their brains are exploding with information of what to do with all that. So in our programs, we just try to go, okay, let's do the most important thing now. Once you've mastered that, let's move on to the next most important thing. But you can only really master one new thing at a time. Mm. Yeah, I love that. I subscribe to very few newsletters in my email, so I can keep my email inbox pretty pretty lean. One exception that I make is for James Clear. And just yesterday, yeah. he had a quote in there that said, do less, keep returning to the one thing, and continue to refine it. And I yeah. think it's so wise. That's so great. We get yeah. so spread thin, like you said, with so many other things. Um, we discussed this on the last podcast, but I, I, I think it's so important to understand that I would love just if you could re-explain kind of what is nutrient density and what is satiety and how do those things relate to each other? Yeah, um, I've, I've learned a lot since we chatted last time about the Of course event, you but, did. Um, of course you did. <laughs> yeah, it, it, I, I'm, I'm exploiting with data and trying to analyze it. Um, I, we actually downloaded... Finally, uh, 114,000 days of data from our nutrient optimizer of people tracking their macros and micros. And I've been, uh, when I talked to Professor Robin Heimer and Simpson a few weeks ago, they said, have you done a, a multivariate analysis on that to understand, you know, do the micronutrients play a role as well as they're all about protein leverage 
and the role of getting an adequate protein and satiety and and not overeating. So yeah, I've been um, diving into that, but uh, yeah, satiety is just you know we we track calories and try to not overeat, but eventually we always eat as much as our body requires until we stop thinking about food and move on and do something else. So you know, as much as you want to restrict over the long term. If you don't change what you eat, you tend to continue to eat the same amount. And if those foods are hyper palatable, low nutrient density, they don't give enough protein, your body, going back to, to Lizzie, your lizard brain, your amygdala, will just keep on seeking out enough nutrition until you get enough to survive, maybe not necessarily thrive, but you need to get through the day and, and you need nutrients and energy to survive, basically. So, um, your super smart lizard brain will make sure you keep on powering on and get enough of those two things, nutrients and energy. But, uh, yeah, and satiety is the art of identifying the foods and meals that will help you not to continue to want to eat what foods satisfy the nutrients you require without excess energy. And definitely the the protein is the biggest lever in that you need enough protein for your, your muscles and, and neurotransmitters and everything else that protein does in your body. But you also need vitamins and minerals, especially minerals, actually, that um, the multivariate analysis shows that um, a protein percentage is the, the, the first biggest lever. And then a bit of fiber tends to help to some degree, but really most people don't eat enough fiber to get a measurable difference. But then you've got potassium and, and sodium and all the other minerals and to, to lesser extent the the vitamins and essential fatty acids that we tend to keep on eating until we get enough of those and then we're satisfied and don't want to keep eating more. So I think the ultimate question in nutrition is, is how do you solve that adequate nutrients without excess energy and what foods and meals will help you do that. So that's where all the data analysis and fun reverse engineering nutrition comes into, into play. Mm. So one of the questions my wife and I ask each other um, after every week is, what is one thing you have learned or changed your mind about? So I'm going to ask you, what have you learned or changed your mind about I since like you it. and I last talked? Yeah, we love it. Oh, wow. Um, I don't know. It's a continual journey. Um and refining and just digging deeper into the into the data and just understanding, I suppose, which nutrients in different contexts, like if you're a low carb, what nutrients do you tend to crave more of and what therefore have a, a greater effect on satiety versus low fat and low protein. And I'm just trying to understand the 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 nuances of all those different scenarios to to say if you typically eat a low protein diet, then you know, what do you need to eat more of? And if you eat a low fat or carnivore or different diets, what do people tend to crave and, and need to pursue more of those nutrients? I think in the low carb world, I'm noticing that a lot of people are moving towards more protein than they had yeah. considered before. Um, yep. You know, like if you're following a true keto diet, it's a certain percentage of your calories is protein, which ends up being, yep. you know, maybe not so much. So how do you define low protein or high protein or what kind of recommend recommendations do you make around that? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I suppose we always swing from extreme to extreme and a, a classical therapeutic ketogenic diet is designed for 
epilepsy and uh, you know Parkinson's and dementia and and you want elevated ketones, but if you're actually looking for fat loss from your body, you need adequate protein and really elevated ketones is a symptom of losing weight from and that, and that those ketones are coming from fat from your body, but just jamming in more butter and bacon and olive oil and MCT oil and exogenous ketones is not going to be necessarily a good thing. So um, just because protein, adequate protein may lower ketones, if it does, some people find it does, some people find it doesn't. Um, and it's not necessarily a, a good or bad thing to have more elevated ketones. So um, adequate protein tends to be um, maybe 1.8 grams per kilo lean body mass. It's sort of a, a good place to start, which is about that one gram per, per pound. Um, if you're coming from a hardcore keto diet, you might be on 15% protein and, and you know, the, the high protein to energy might be 40, 50% protein. But most people, if they go from 10 to 50 overnight, will just crash and they'll find it really difficult. But we're all about sort of let's take it to from 15 to 20 next week. And then if you can do 20 and you're not craving energy, let's go from 20 to 25 and keep on working up the line only enough to keep on moving forward. And that's where a little bit of tracking can be really helpful to reflect on how much protein am I getting? You know, where's my energy from fat and carbs coming from? What should I dial back? What should I dial up? And just sort of fine-tune that balance. But I don't think there's a one-size-fits-all prescription for everybody. You have to say, what am I doing now and how can I move towards optimal? So, yeah, I, uh, there can be general rules, but I think the best approach is what are you doing now and how do you tweak it just a little bit to move forward and build those habits because just jumping to, you know, from one diet fad to the next diet fad from high-fat keto to Ted Naiman is the messiah and I'm going to go super high protein, even he's finding that having to, he's having to talk people down from the tree because when they dial up to really high protein ratio because they want the results overnight, they're going, oh, I'm really hungry because your body just can't get the energy it needs from the protein. So you just have to progressively tweak it in a sustainable manner for long-term results. Mm. That's a question I was going to ask you, actually. Um, is there too much protein, and should the average person walking around really be concerned about that? Too much protein? Um, no, is the short answer. <laughs> um, but 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 if, if you live on chicken breast and kangaroo, you're going to get to the point where your body's craving more energy from fat or carbs. And it's really hard to convert the energy and protein to uh, to unlock that, to convert that to ATP. There's a really high cost of conversion, um, the high thermic effect of food. It takes quite a lot of work for your body. You lose 25 to 35% of the energy in protein just in that conversion and you'll get, you know, you get hotter. You might even get the meat sweats if you go really hardcore and it's just difficult for your body to do that. So if you jump, you're sure if you're really obese and got a lot of weight to lose and really dial up your protein percentage, you'll be really uh, uh, satiety will be really high per calorie but and that might be really good if you've got a lot of weight to lose but if you're leaner and more active and 
you're not going to fuel a marathon off off chicken breast and protein powder because your body will be going. I, I just need the fat and carbs, dude. Just give me the energy. So you need to find that right balance. And yeah, again, not a one size fits all. Find out what you're doing now and just dial it a little bit in the direction you need need to go. So I remember a meal that I ate a few years ago was at some cooking class and the meal was chicken breast and a small vegetable side. And I remember, I remember feeling like I was full when I left, but, Mm. but that fullness didn't last very long. And I was starving. Mm. I tore my kitchen apart that night, like eating (laughs) everything. And so, oh man, terrible. So that's kind of, see if you, if you agree with this, I kind of tell people there's a big difference between fullness and satiety. And yeah, I can Mm. get full on certain foods and my stomach will be full and I'm going to stop eating. But I know that if I don't, I don't eat satiating foods that I'm going to be starving in two or three hours where if I'm satiated, I can just kind of go about my day and do stuff. And it's not really that big of a deal. Yeah. And you need to find that right balance between, uh, you know, nutrients and energy. You need enough of each. Most people need to dial back the energy a little bit from fat and or carbs. But if you just tried to live on chicken breast, you know, the, the, it's the best thing for bodybuilders to, or the very lean protein uh, for, for bodybuilders to lean out without losing lean muscle mass. But, you know, there's a, a saying, embrace the suck for a reason because it's not hard to be on that protein sparing model. It's not easy to be on that protein sparing modified fast extreme because your body craves energy and it just doesn't want to lose body fat too quickly and unless you're a competition bodybuilder you don't need to put yourself through that extreme torture um you, you just need to find a lifestyle that's sustainable for you know the next 10 years you know is what i'm doing going to help me move towards where i need to be is it sustainable do i enjoy it um Sure, you enjoy eating donuts and cheesecake all day, but that's probably not going to lead you to where you want to be. But you know, let's dial it back a little bit from you know between the the Oreos and donuts and somewhere between that extreme and the the lean bodybuilder protein sparing modified fast. You just need to move one direction or the other and. Now that Twitter and social media are just full of all these debates about you know I tried the extreme chicken breast only diet and I was really hungry. It's like, yeah, that, that's just how it works. If you go to one extreme or the other, it, it, it's not going to be great. Or, I, you know, all I, I ate nothing but suet for a week and I didn't feel hungry at all. Yeah, it was like 6,000 calories a day. So, you know, let, let's find some rational balance between the extremes and just move a little bit toward in the direction you need to move. Yeah, uh, I love that. That's amazing. I mean, I think you can pretty much ask anybody who did Atkins circa like 2000, where we were all, you know, low fat and everybody was losing weight on Atkins, but like the whole planet was more miserable. Like everybody was seemed, <laughs> seemed to be really moody all the time because yeah that's right they weren't getting any energy they weren't using stored body fat as energy um super interesting i you've talked about this recently and i want to ask does the protein requirement that you need change based on your age there's some thinking out there that says that like you know you need protein as you're growing and then you need protein as you're aging but then during the middle part of your life you need less that which seems a bit ridiculous to me but I'd, i'd love to hear your thoughts on that yeah, um, Robin Hyman seems to talk about that a little bit. And it's interesting. Like when you're growing, you need protein for growth, but you'll see a, a ton of energy for your activity. So my 
son who's playing rugby and riding to school and in the gym before and after school. And he, he needs a ton of protein, but he also needs a fair chunk of energy to fuel that and to, to grow with all the testosterone that's bouncing around his body at 15. Um, in middle age, we're still fairly insulin sensitive and probably not so active. So you sort of go into a bit of a maintenance mode through that, you know, between 25 and 45 or whatever. Um, and if you're lifting and active, you're still going to need plenty of protein. But as you get older, we start to get insulin resistant and the insulin, that, that just means that, you know, insulin doesn't work as well. And part of the role of insulin is to keep your stored energy from fat, glucose and protein in storage. So what happens when your insulin isn't working as well, gluconeogenesis sort of ramps up and you lose the protein you eat to glucose in your blood. So it's the elevated glucose and you're not able to store muscle protein as well. So you really need to ramp that up even more in older age and people who are older, older and less active um, tend to lose the appetite, especially for protein. And if they're in a nursing home, you know, what's the cheapest food to feed people in captivity? It's not, you know, high quality protein and steak, it's everything else. So um, people who are older definitely tend to need to emphasize protein more because they're going through sarcopenia and losing the muscle and which is all related to metabolic syndrome. So yeah, stay active, eat your protein, especially when you're older. But I don't think you need to fear excess protein necessarily because I don't think many people are actually overeating protein. Um, you can, I mean, it's all about the protein percentage, not the, uh, you know, eat more protein from butter or bacon. It's about getting adequate protein from good quality sources that come with enough energy but not too much because if you just ate, you know, I'm getting more protein from bacon, you're going to overeat calories and, and get fat. So you just need to dial in that protein percentage. Mm. Yeah, that's a great way to think about it. I love that. Um, I wanted to talk to you a little bit today about data-driven fasting. Um, this is something mm. that was left over from our conversation last time that <laughs> I wanted to make sure we dive down uh, this rabbit hole as well. Tell yeah. us a little bit about data-driven fasting and what kind of turned you on to this idea. Um, yeah, th there was a, a study from the University of Otago about five years ago um, in New Zealand where they did this hunger training using a, a bl blood sugar meter, um, which was really fascinating. And I wrote a blog post about five years ago after it came out, um, just people using their glucose to fuel their, their, their uh, to, to fine tune their meal timing. Um, and I spend a lot of my day watching my wife's CGM go up and down and, and see when she eats more, eats less, and she's stressed. And you just see the different behaviours and how the blood sugar and insulin changes. So that's sort of a, a default language for me, which I think you know, I'm blessed to have those those insights. So um, 18 months ago, after doing a bit of heavy lifting and gaining a bit more fat than I wanted to, I thought, you know, I'd devise a spreadsheet to try and guide my meal timing to be more disciplined to only refuel when I needed to based on my blood sugars. And then I, I started a little Facebook group and uh, shared it with some other people to trial it. And it just worked really, really, really well um, to 
basically rather than worrying about as much your blood sugar after you eat, it's just, you know, using a blood sugar as a fuel gauge to say, is it below what's normal for me? Yes, I need to eat. Or is it elevated? Mm, no, I'm not really hungry. I don't need to refuel. Or if I'm really hungry and the blood sugar is above your current trigger, then, you know, all you need is, is protein and nutrients rather than as much energy. But if your blood sugar is well below your trigger, well below what's normal for you, then let's have a little bit of carbohydrate to bring that back up quickly so you're not consumed by hunger and that usually drives you to eat hyperpalatable junk food, which is the fat and carb combo that we never stop eating. Um, yeah, so rolled that out and, um, yeah, it's gone really, really well and um, 10,000 people in the Facebook group now and we're running seven challenges a year with about 1,500 people in each and it just worked really, really, really well. People get really amazing insights from their blood sugar and go, yeah, okay, I understand what my body needs and how my body responds to the food I eat. Do I need to cut back carbohydrates? The carbohydrates not an issue for me and I just need to eat two or three square meals a day that are nutrient dense. And, hey, look, when I eat protein, my, my blood sugar drops after I eat and I can eat again more regularly and I don't feel tired, I don't feel cold, I don't feel overly hungry and when I came from the people tend to come from that extended fasting more is better approach and they fast for days because they're hoping for magical autophagy after two or three days of not eating and then end up you know face down in the donuts and pizza or their you know keto and fasting so they're just refeeding on butter and bacon and that doesn't lead to optimal metabolic results in the long term if you're body composition degrades. So, yeah, it, um, it's just a really nice way of using just that minimal effective dose of data to help people to dial in their what and when they eat. Mm. Well, you said something interesting, and you're right. Like most, I, And I would think this way too. Most of the time when we're looking at blood glucose, we're looking at it after a meal. Um, mm. So what a great idea to look at it before. Mm. Do, you, do you have a preference between you know, maybe a, a CGM, which is probably a little less invasive, but, you know, sticks yep. on your arm for a few weeks yeah. versus sticking yourself, which, you know, can kind of hurt. But um, do you have a preference yeah. either way? Well, I, I, for people doing data-driven fasting, we just recommend buy a, a simple, cheap glucometer. Um, I, every couple of weeks, I put the CGM onto my wife and people say it doesn't hurt, but she winces like hell and finds it quite anxiety producing after wearing one full time for quite a while. So yeah, it, it's not, CGMs aren't low pain and they're not necessarily accurate, especially the Libra, which you can't calibrate. So the Libra tends to read lower than actual and, and just that excess amount of data I love the data, but, you know, dialing in my wife's CGM has been quite a mentally demanding process. And then when people have the the CGM, they tend to, you know, I had a coffee, it raised my blood sugar by three points. Is that going to make me fat? Or, you know, I had a sweetener in it. I was like, am I going to get fat on that? Or you know, I, I exercised or, you know, I, I sneezed and, you know, they stress about every little blip on the CGM and lose the forest for the trees that you just need to use the, the glucose to validate your hunger 
a couple of times a day rather than looking at the CGM and saying, oh, it's below my trigger, I'm going to eat now and they end up eating too much. So, yeah, definitely less data is better and um, I suppose from a cost, you know, I think in America you can get the CGMs funded by your healthcare, but they're actually very, very expensive devices that, you know, that money that's being blown on on healthcare funding could be used to, for insulin or other vital medications that people are dying without. So, yeah, I'm a little bit anti-CGM just because it usually leads to paralysis by analysis. Mm. Wow. I never thought I would be in the day that an engineer (laughs) wants less data. (laughs) (laughs) Well, uh, again and again, like I wanted to be a biohacker um, back in the days of Dave Asprey and track everything. But, uh, you know, you can only keep it up for so long before you go, I've got other things to do in my life. And the more people we have have through our challenges, the more you realise that they just need to, dial in that one thing that works for them right now and everybody gets overwhelmed by too much data and even if they can keep tracking all the data they don't know what to do with all that data so it's just about finding the minimal effective dose of tracking track something Um, peter drucker said you you manage what you measure it's important to measure something but measuring everything all at once just blows people's brains up and you just need to find that one thing that you need to track now whether it's is it your waist to height is it your pre-meal blood sugar is it your protein percentage is it nutrient density if you really want to level it up and dial in your micronutrition Um, but other than that let's just track one thing at a time and and manage that rather than trying to manage everything all at once because you just don't actually make long-term progress yeah, no, I absolutely love that. I think that's great advice. I do not miss the days when I was back at the gym and, you know, we had a little desk that I could work at that was right next to the body fat machine. And I would just cringe when the, the people would come in every single day and take a measurement. It's like, go, don't, don't do this every single day. This is not going to tell you yeah. anything at all. You need to space it out a little bit and go chill yeah. out, go have fun, go paddleboard, do something else. <laughs> yeah. And focus on managing the inputs and the outputs tend to look after themselves over the long term rather than going, oh, I gained 200 grams today because I didn't take as big a toilet visit <laughs> as I did yesterday. <laughs> you know, and, and, and that sort of you know, we, we always emphasize the negative more than the positive. So the, those negative bits of data that we judge ourselves on often lead to, to failure. Mm. Well, okay. So interesting. You've collected so much data over such a long period of time. And I, I really appreciate that you make this so individual and, and mm. unique for everybody. But with this many people and this much data, there must be a few patterns that have emerged um, that you've discovered from collecting all these people, you know, their their fasting numbers. So if if Mm. you had to generalize a few tips of things that you've seen that might not apply to everybody, but maybe on a bell curve, they they normally sit in the middle. What kinds of things have you have you learned along those lines? Yeah, definitely. Protein percentage is the biggest lever in nutrition. Um, dialing up your protein percentage, people tend to eat fewer calories each day if they have a higher protein percentage. But as I said, there's a limit to how much you can do that, do sustainably. Um, definitely then the minerals tend to, to play an effect. So you need to be getting enough potassium and, and sodium and a bunch of other minerals from your diet. And then going forward, um, 
yeah, just taking the insights, the simple insights from your blood sugars and uh, tracking your food if you want to take it to that level can really be very enlightening and we have really nice uh, response over the long term as people just dial in what and when they eat using the minimum effective dose of data. Mm. Do most people tend to be hungry in the morning or is that a more optimal time to fast? Um, yeah, that's a really interesting question. Um, a lot of people tend to not be hungry first thing, but then, you know, they, they push their, their eating window back until later and tend to binge and overeat. So definitely um, if you're a little bit hungry in the morning, then when that first hunger comes, try to eat more, try to eat more protein at that first meal, and then people tend to be less hungry later in the day. So we sort of emphasise, hey, if, if you're a little bit hungry in the morning, even if your blood sugar is high, you don't need fuel at that point. You just need protein. So that really helps smash the hunger and manage overeating later in the day. And if you don't eat as much as late at night, then your waking blood sugars are going to be better and satiety tends to be better. But you need to find the balance between, uh, you know, I'm going to, you know, if 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 uh, you are someone who wakes up early and goes goes to bed early and you don't have any um, day job fixed schedule that you need to work to, you can be like you and uh, and eat early in the day and finish eating at three and and that's great. But it doesn't work for everybody in the family routine, so you just need to find that balance that works for gotcha. you and your family and your and your routine and your work. So. You, yeah, you can't be hard and fast for everybody, even though that early time restricted feeding tends to work work really nicely for people if you can implement it. Gotcha. Interesting. You've already mentioned autophagy, which I find endlessly fascinating and <laughs> super cool. Um, I, I wonder if, if you can explain like what, what it is and... And I understand that we don't have any really great markers to tell when we're, we're you know, in a state of autophagy. Um, do we know whether shorter fasts can be just as effective as like a three-day fast to be able to activate autophagy? Yeah, to be honest, we don't really know a lot about autophagy as much as you see all those little memes on Instagram and Facebook about, you know, fasting for two hours does this and fasting for six hours does this and fasting for... 24 hours does this and fasting for 48 hours did this in a mouse study but you know that mouse study by Volta Longo doesn't take into account that one mouse day is 40 human days so to get that same effect as the you know, 40 mouse day fast you've got to times your 40 mouse day fast by 40 human days and you've you know how long you're fasting to get that autophagy effect and how committed are you and then what are you going to eat it the end of that fasting period. So to be honest, we don't know much about fasting and autophagy in humans, but what we do know is that having a, a lower waist-to-height ratio and less body fat and more power-to-weight ratio and you know, being stronger and having a lower body fat percentage and lower waking blood sugars are all really positively correlated with you know, lower diabetes and lower cancer rates and just basically lower risk of any metabolic disease so um i think if you're going to manage anything it's managing that and let's find a way to over the long term achieve a, a better body composition be stronger be leaner and uh you know you don't have to be a 
a stage competition bodybuilder, you just need a, a waist to height ratio of less than 0.5 and a waking blood sugar of less than 100. And you're in a pretty healthy position from there and everything else sort of vanity. Um, yeah. So rather than worrying about magic autophagy that we honestly don't understand, the experts admit that, you know, they really don't know much about autophagy in humans because you can't dissect them after two hours to see what happened um, the way you can mice. Um, yeah. So we, we, we don't know is the honest truth. And I think, it's largely distraction and uh, to believe that some seven-day fast was magical for you if you continue to do those seven-day fasts and end up binging on donuts or, or bacon after that and have worsening body composition over the long term. You're not actually helping your metabolic health as much as you believed in that magical autophagy. Mm. Well, I love that you are able to pick through all the different data points and just focus on the ones that are really important and keep things mm. really simple. On that note, mm. I want to go back and talk about your book, Big Fat Keto Lies. Um, I'm wondering, you know, some of the things that you discovered, um, how you discovered them and why you decided to write a book about it. Yeah, I've just been on the journey with everybody else over the last five years of, uh, you know, we discovered low carb to help money's diabetes. My wife, Monica, is a type one diabetic and um, getting off standard processed food and moving towards a lower carb diet that helped stabilize her blood sugars and insulin was magical. But then keto came along and we all jumped on the let's chase high ketones and eat more fat and need to be in the optimal ketone zone and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And then maybe we need to fear protein and um, yeah, so we went down that rabbit hole and then more of us started to find that, hey, the people with the better metabolic health have lower blood sugars and lower ketones, even if they're on a quote-unquote ketogenic diet. You just don't want massive amounts of energy floating in your bloodstream from glucose, free fatty acids, or ketones, especially all three at the same time. That's called diabetic ketoacidosis and sort of a healthier place to be is, you know, a, a lower level of energy in your body overall that you've got enough but not too much to the point you, the insulin needs to be ramping up. So, um, yeah, I worked out through the data analysis that, you know, despite being told just eat fat to satiety, I took that as eat more butter, eat more bacon, eat more peanut butter, eat the MCT oil to get my ketones up. You know, that was the worst advice because fat is the least satiating macronutrient. So just trying to get that data out there to help people understand that, again, it's just being having a, a healthy body composition, healthy waist to height ratio, which is not about eating more dietary fat to try and lose body fat. It's about dialing back both the carbs to get stable blood sugars in the healthy range but not flatline and then dialing back your dietary fat to lose so you can use your body fat um, to move towards sort of a healthy body composition over the long term which is just you know a, a satiety and getting nutrient density and enough nutrients so you, you can manage how much you eat without as much conscious restriction I remember back in like 2017 or something when I was first starting to coach low carb and I got a text um, in the morning from one of my clients and they were like, yeah, I couldn't get as much fat in my day as you told me to. 
Um, so I just drank like half a cup of olive oil and I had to stop <laughs> and be like, wait, wait a second. Like, I'm, I'm, I'm writing this from, from my toilet and I've been here for three hours. <laughs> totally, <laughs> totally disaster pants <laughs> for sure. Yeah. I mean, that was a really common thing early on. We were giving people recommendations for a certain amount of fat. And if you didn't get it, you yeah. had to eat more and more fat without realizing yeah. the fats there. Like you have the stored fat, yeah. you just need to teach yeah. yourself how to use it. Yeah, and you need to give your body the nutrients it needs. So it goes, yeah, there's no famine, there's no emergency. I'm getting all the nutrition I need. I don't need to store all this, you know, excess fuel tank battery that I've been carrying around. And your body goes, yeah, cool. I'll use that. Yeah, you're saving it for a reason. <laughs> it needs to come out. Um, I, yeah. I, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about the personal fat threshold. Yeah, um, really fascinating work by Roy Taylor from the UK a few years ago that uh, identified that some people develop diabetes when they're, you know, more obese, whereas some people who get type 2 diabetes at a, at a lower level of body fat it seems to be related to a range of different factors. Um, one of them is race, you know, Southeast Asians tend to have lower muscle stores in the legs and tend to develop diabetes at a lower BMI, um, whereas, you know, Pacific Islanders might gain a massive amount of body fat while still having great blood sugars and then their body fat fills up to a point where it just can't take any more energy. And, you know, our fat stores have this massive capacity to store energy from maybe 40,000 calories for a lean bodybuilder who's just finished a stage show up to half a million calories for someone who's definitely way overweight. It's a massive amount of energy, but it's limited. It's like a, a sponge where eventually your body fat stores tap out, your bum and your belly says, no, I'm big enough now. I just can't fill this sponge with any more energy from that diet you're continually throwing in your mouth. And I just can't store anymore sorry so it overflows into the other parts of your body that are still more insulin sensitive like your heart and your liver and your your brain and uh, your pancreas and yeah so you, you're no longer storing your, your energy in your adipose tissue it goes into your your visceral tissue into your organs which is a really uh, dangerous place to be and then once that's all starting to get full it then overflows into your your bloodstream because your your uh the glucose has to be burnt off first but then but the, the glucose sort of backs up if your if your fat stores are over full so you know elevated glucose is really a symptom of having too much body fat that all the energy is just being backing up in your system and then overflowing into your bloodstream so that that blood glucose is the the first warning sign that the overall fuel tank from from fat carbs ketones alcohol um free fatty acids are all built up and blocked up in your system so to that's why glucose is a really good measure to um to know if from a moment to moment if you've got if your fuel tank is topped off um, but the way to resolve the, the elevated glucose is to manage your body fat, which is the largest storage area. 
It's just amazing, isn't it, to think about the human body, the systems that oh, we have evolved. It's with. incredible. It's incredible. I love it. Yeah, it, it. Your body is protecting you by trying to store up all of this energy that you're intaking, and it will continue to mm. do it to protect you. And if you know your body fat percentage, you can calculate that number. You just reverse mm. engineer, you know how mm. many how many pounds of fat are on the body, and then you'll mm. be able to tell how many calories of energy are stored on the body. And and you're right. Yeah. Like I've seen that number get up to five hundred thousand. 600,000, like huge numbers of energy that can be burned off. We opened this discussion talking about nutrient density. Can you explain Mm. like what, what the opposite of nutrient density is and some of the biggest offenders that are causing some of these problems? Yeah. Um, it's just hyper palatable processed junk food that has, um, low nutrient value per calories. So that's really, um, the, refined vegetable oils and refined grains and sugars that are all smashed together with some artificial colours and artificial flavours and maybe some fortified vitamins because the label doesn't look very good with the trash that's in there. Um, and those foods are just the, the mainstay of our model, modern diet, which is amazingly fueled by, um, you asked me before what I've learnt recently, I've been digging into the uh, uh, the energy inputs into our food system and just the risk of, you know, one day we will run out. I mean, a lot of people say we, we reached peak oil in 1980 and that's when we, we reached the limit of how much we could extract from the ground of oil and really the um, oil and gas and all these um, easy fossil fuel non-renewable resources have just been jammed into our food system through fertilizers and transport and irrigation and and in the near future um that's gonna that's gonna deplete it's gonna get harder to get and it's gonna harder to keep on just injecting energy into our food system and, and it will change but in the meantime we're just it's a party for the last hundred years the amount of energy in our food system has just skyrocketed um mainly from fertilizers from created from natural gas that uh is just unique in our history and our population are at, we're growing more people and larger people and it's just uh historically absurd and uh it can't continue so yeah that if you want to prepare for the future it's to try and identify foods that are less reliant on the injection of cheap energy from non-renewable sources that uh, will those foods will not just be better for the planet because they're grown in a regenerative environment but they'll be better for you because they contain more nutrients and less energy that's artificially injected into the food system. Mm. Yeah. One of our past guests, Lierre Keith, um, wrote the vegetarian mm. myth and she talks about drawdown, how, how once you start taking more from the planet than it can give you, you're, you're, mm. you're, the clock is running on that civilization. It's going to run out. It's just a matter of when kind of scary yeah. stuff. And what you were describing it is it's ominous. Yeah. It's crazy. And what you were describing earlier is like hyper palatable foods, um, and really poor nutrient, density foods you mm. just i don't know what it's like in australia but you just described every break room in america i mean it's <laughs> it's appalling dude it's i think i had to walk through the cereal aisle the other day and it's like all of these bright colors and marketing and yep. heart healthy and like it's insane yeah 
Yeah, oh, you guys have exported your food system everywhere, so it's not uh, not just America now. You're welcome. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, you're welcome. Um, <laughs> we we also have to talk about something we talked about extensively last time, your Nutri-Boosters. I think these yeah. are amazing. You do such a great job with these. Can you um, just kind of um, recap what those are and, and tell us again kind of um, what, where that idea came from and what they can do? Yeah, um, well, started with the satiety analysis and nutrient density analysis, and then get trying to guide people through the masterclass and hey, track your food and here's the recipes that might help you. But we realized that what people really needed was you know, who are you, what are your goals, and therefore, what food prescription do you need? And you know, for people who are you know, managing diabetes, like my wife, who don't necessarily need to lose weight. They just need a, a nutrient-dense, lower-carb version of that diet, um, which might be 30% protein and, and packed with as many nutrients as possible while still getting enough energy to maintain weight. Meanwhile, you've got people on a, a therapeutic ketogenic diet who need it for epilepsy and Alzheimer's. So we designed a bunch of recipes that suit those sort of goals while still getting as many nutrients as possible with a 70-80% fat diet um, for people who actually need that. But I think 98% of people who are following a keto diet don't actually need that. They need something more of a a higher protein to energy ratio diet. So we've got, for people who are really hardcore, we've got like a 60% protein selection of of, of, uh, Nutri-Booster recipes that are packed with as many nutrients as we can fit there. So we ended up with... 25 different recipe books and uh we've just finishing off the meal plans for that as well so you know some people are histamine intolerant some people are um concerned about oxalate some people want to eat a a plant-based diet because they've got ethical concerns some people want to eat a meat-based diet so yeah we've um developed worked through two two or three thousand recipes in chronometer and then sort of those ranked by nutrient density um, for different goals and then shortlisted that to 460 that are now embedded into our app Nutrient Optimizer, which then you can track your food for a few days and it'll tell you, tell you how you heat based on your goals. Here are the recipes and foods that you should try next. And then once you put those into place, Here's the next challenge, and it just continually helps you dial in those harder to find nutrients. And they always come with plenty of protein, which helps with satiety. And then the adding in the vitamins and minerals in adequate quantities really helps. It's sort of the icing on the cake to help people dial in their satiety. Mm. I mean, we talked about this last time, but the, the pictures are incredible. The recipes are super <laughs> easy. I would challenge anybody to spend like a week or two on any one of those plans, eating those meals, and then try to go back to eating what they were eating before. Because I yeah. think I think their taste buds would change very, very quickly. Yeah. It's so delicious yeah, we, to eat we, that way. We keep saying you can't unsee it once you've experienced nutrient density, once you've quantified your nutrition and seen the, you know, the quantified nutrients in your food, you can't go back to eating that American trash that you were talking before that's all coloured and flavoured and has no nutrient value. It's just pure energy from non-renewable energy sources that are just, we're going to be wally in no time. Unless unless Elon can get us circulating the earth in a rocket ship (laughs) or we can go to Mars and eat our own 
potatoes feel boro and poo. I don't know how that works. I don't, <laughs> I don't know what the nutrient content of Martian rock is like and whether it's anything like Earth, but I doubt it. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. I don't think I'd be able to afford the ticket anyway, so I'll be one of the bums stuck back here. <laughs> Let me know what it tastes like. <laughs> You're going to have to create a new Nutribooster for that one. <laughs> yeah. How to live on Mars once we've on- fucked up Earth. <laughs> That's amazing. Dude, I love that. <laughs> one we haven't covered yet. <laughs> uh, exactly. Well, get on top of it. It's your million-dollar idea. <laughs> Oh, that's hilarious. Um, I would love to hear a little bit more about the masterclass. Um, I know you just kind of talked about it a little bit, but can you go in greater detail on how that works and some of the things that you offer? Yeah, um, we've been running a nutritional optimization masterclass for the last three years. Um, That's another thing, actually, that we've realized that six weeks to dial in macros and micros was a a heck of a lot to take in. And um, so in 2022, we're looking at breaking into a four-week data-driven macros and four-week data-driven micros. So the, the process would be that you might try data-driven fasting and then people would get a fair bit of progress, but eventually what you eat um, becomes critical to keep making progress, even if you've dialed in your blood sugars. So then data-driven macros would help people dial in their protein percentage and get you know, the right balance between protein and energy and bring down their their carbs if required to stabilize blood sugars to healthy levels and then we've got a we're building the data driven micros which will then you'll track your food and then using the NutriBooster recipes it will then guide you to hey try this one and try this one to the dial in the the micronutrient density and then that'd be for the crazy people who want to gamify the nutrition and compete for a hundred percent on the leaderboard which um people go crazy for um other people just want to you know dial up sensibly and rationally to a sustainable level but um, both are welcome and it's a whole lot of fun and like you say you, you can't unsee that once you've experienced quantifying the nutrient density and then after that we want you to live a normal life without quantifying everything too much. Just come back and tweak it when you need to. Mm, that's such a great approach. I love that. I really enjoyed listening to a recent episode of somebody who did the master class and achieved a hundred score, and she did it on a plant based diet. And you yeah, know, again, I want to sit here and say that's going to invoke the rage of the the keto gods or the carnivore gods, but <laughs> she she pulled it off, and she had really like honest, specific reasons why she couldn't eat meat. And I get yep. that; like that yep. makes a lot of sense culturally yep. or you know religiously. There's a lot of reasons why you need to eat a certain way. And again, yep. you're just providing so many different options for people to be able to do that. Yeah, yeah. We, we want to be nutritionally agnostic, so that you don't. I think a lot of the discussion gets bogged down in you know, red meat versus plants, and it's just so emotional. And then it becomes this clickbait Twitter war, and everything reverts to memes. But if you say, "Hey, are you getting the nutrients you need from the food you're eating?" in a bioavailable manner, then more power to you if that works for you. And and Karen did an amazing job of, she eats a ton of cottage cheese to get a bioavailable protein and then heaps of mushrooms and spinach and everything else. And she's gone from 30 years of obesity and going through cancer and then she was fasting for weeks and weeks at a time on a regular basis under the best fasting gurus that you'd know the name of. And then she just was still hungry and and not 
losing weight, but once she's eating nutrient-dense food that gives the body what it needs, again, the body just says, hey, I don't need this. You know, we're, we're not going through a, a famine anymore. We can drop all the excess stored, stored energy. There's no emergency and you know, everything works itself out once you give your body the nutrients it needs. Man, I love that. That's so cool. Love that you're able to work with people in so many different capacities. If somebody yeah. had to take a simple tip away from this conversation, what what do you think that one tip would be? Um, don't rely on Mars to save the planet. I don't know. Um, <laughs> um, uh, uh, f- find one simple thing you can quantify. Uh, I think, uh, that, but even before that, you can start with avoid packaged foods that are a combination of refined vegetable oils, refined starches, sugars with uh, food colourings and flavourings in them. If, if your kids can't pronounce the ingredients, they probably shouldn't be eating them and neither should you. And then, you know, that'll get you a long way down the track and from there you can start looking at, you know, pre-meal blood sugars and protein percentage and nutrient density if you really want to take it to the limit. Mm. I love that. That's a great piece of advice. Marty, this has been another really, really fun conversation. <laughs> Thank um, you. Always love chatting with you. Where can people go to find you and find your work? Yeah, um, maybe Dutterton Fasting is a really good place to start if you want to just simply quantify when you eat using your blood sugar. We've got um, Facebook group and a bunch of stuff online. Just search for Dutterton Fasting and check out optimizing nutrition um there's a blog and facebook group and instagram and twitter you can check out with all the nutribooster recipes um punched out every day and yeah we've got a nutribooster facebook group as well um if you want to check out those nutribooster recipes and uh get some colorful inspiration about how amazing food can look and taste that's amazing. We will link to all of that in the show notes. It, it's really it's really awesome to talk to an engineer who really appreciates data in high quantities, but can also distill down really simple ideas and make it very yeah. easy for people. And I really appreciate that about you. Thank you, Marty Kendall, so very much Thank for you. coming onto our show again. We love learning from you. Um, we look forward to lots of other conversations in the future and we're looking forward to following your work for a good while to come. So thank you so much. We really are very grateful for you. Uh, Thank you so much, Casey. Been a whole lot of fun. Thank you for letting me rant and rave. (laughs) Absolutely. And we just figured out uh, the way out of our planetary problems. We'll just go to Mars. (laughs) (laughs) Solved. The end. (laughs) Done. Done. Well, thanks again. It was really a pleasure and an honor to host you. Hey, thanks, buddy. See ya. And this has been another episode of Boundless Body Radio.